crew. Hey, what's up, everybody? Greatest show on dirt coming to you live from the Sweet Bee Studios. I'm your host, Quentin. Whoa, it is December 18th. I am super excited. We are about a week away from Christmas Day. I cannot wait. Merry Christmas to everybody. Thank you for tuning in. I can't, I can't thank everybody enough. This podcast is getting way more popular than I ever thought it would. Actually, had someone messaged me. They wanted to pay me money to advertise on the podcast. I said, oh, God, I don't know what you've asked. <laughs> like, I don't know for that kind of podcast, but people, are, people like it, man. I'm humbled by that. I don't say it to brag, but I, I, I know, I know I say this to every podcast, but you listening to this podcast and hanging out with me on the Instagram page makes this possible for me, and I love it, right? I love doing this when nobody was listening. But now that people actually listen to the podcast and I can have conversations with people on Instagram, I'm, dude, I, I'm, I'm just having so much fun right now. I love digging in to this nostalgic baseball, but I also like how it digs in to life itself, right? Like I've always said, and I've only sort of discovered this recently, that I want this podcast to be nostalgic and look at the past, right, when it comes to baseball, and remind us to enjoy the times that we have with the people that are in our lives now. And I've only discovered that thought within the last, what, four or five episodes of it, because that's what I'm sort of getting out of it, especially as the community has gotten larger. It's reminding me that, hey, you know, like those were good times then, and we didn't necessarily know it, right? But that's how nostalgic stuff works, because then when you look back on it, you sometimes have that feeling of, man, I really wish I knew that those were the good times when I was in them. But looking back at it and having those thoughts, it reminds me that there are good times right now. You know, my wife and I have a 10-month-old, and it's about to be her first Christmas. This is a good time. I will look back on this. That's one of the reasons why I'm so excited for Christmas this year is I'm going to look back on this 5, 10, 20 years from now and say, oh my gosh, that was my daughter's first Christmas, and I enjoyed it so much, and it's been a blast. We've been watching Christmas movies. She's already watched Die Hard like five times. Yes, that's a Christmas movie, and it's just like, you know, I, we've been shopping for Christmas presents. We're going to get them wrapped up this weekend, and it's just so fun going through the whole experience. Now, she's only She'll be 11 months by the time Christmas gets here. So she doesn't really know what's going on with a lot of things in her life. Like she knows if there's food on her plate to eat some of it and throw the rest. She knows that she can go in her little go-go, run in front of the oven and see her reflection and yell like an angry dictator, right? She knows that too. And she also knows that she wants to put her finger in an electrical socket more than anything in this entire world. And, um... So, like, I get it, right? Like, she doesn't get it, but she's just so fun. And for me, like, I'm getting so much out of it. And I'm left with, you know, enjoying these times and remembering, like, for the Christmas shopping, for example, right? Getting her gifts. Like, I remember all the cool gifts I got when I was a kid. And I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, dude, she's going to feel that way in a few years. When she can start to remember her holidays, she's going to remember the gifts she got when she was five, six, seven, eight. Like, I remember getting one year, I was. Outside of baseball, I loved professional wrestling. Like I don't watch wrestling now, but wrestling in the 80s and 90s was so badass. And one year, 
I got The Ultimate Warrior, Rick Rude, and The Rockers. I got all of those action figures, and it's one of the best Christmases ever. I've still got them right behind me on the shelf, and I absolutely love them. Like, and this that year was like ripping those suckers open. Like, that was a monumental gift to me, and I think about it, and I have this really good feeling. Like, wow, that... Those are awesome gifts, and I love them. And then I realized that this is what I'm doing with my daughter right now, and it's so fun. But <laughs> wrestling action figures were so badass, and that was it. Like, if I could get wrestling action figures and baseball cards for Christmas, like, I was cooking. So I got to take a break. I'm sipping on a hams right now. There's a food line by my house, you know, because if you're going to drink hams, you pretty much got to be up north, but... There's a food line by my house that sells six packs. Food Lion. Bro, if you ever get to a food line, they've got just the dankest beer selection. Like they sell 40 ounces of King Cobra. And right next to the 40 ounces of King Cobra were the six pack of hands. And I was like, I'm going to get a headache tonight. Like this is just trashy beer. But I get like that around the holidays with beer too. Like I rarely, I don't drink as much as I say I do, to be honest with you. But I do most of my drinking around the holidays, right, as a self-preservation thing. <laughs> Not really. It's just fun to do, right? Like, I get nostalgic around the holidays, and I love to drink a trashy beer. Give me a Hams, Keystone Light. I've got some old style in the fridge still that my mom bought me from Illinois. And, right, I just have to enjoy those things, too. But it's, gosh, man, just having the kid, dude. I remember other Christmas gifts, like the BB gun Christmas gift was always the best. And I don't know. If kids pack BB guns with them anymore, I remember riding my back down the road with my BB gun just shooting at stuff. Like, I would just stop in the middle of the road and just shoot at a bird, right? If Blackbirds are really where it was. Like, if you saw a blackbird, like, they didn't want you to shoot bluebirds and cardinals, but you could shoot a blackbird. And, yeah, I remember just riding my bike, just packing heat with the BB gun, and then you would get the little, what were the brand of BBs that came in the little milk carton-looking things, right? You remember those? They were like copperhead BBs or something like that. And they would come to the milk cart and you would get them. And then you would pour the BBs like at the head of the gun or whatever. Like you would like slide open the door and then pour the BBs in. They were copperhead BBs. I think I'll have to look it up. And they were the gold BBs and they were legit, man. And like we would just shoot our friends with BB guns, right? It's crazy. Like I'm getting my daughter toys to help her learn. But I realized like I got a BB gun for Christmas one year, and then I just shot my friends with it, and then tried to kill birds, like, it was murder and drive-by, <laughs> I don't know if kids do that sort of stuff anymore, which I still had my BB gun, I feel like I need one, man, like, a, like, a BB gun and a beanbag chair, like, dude, I got a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles beanbag chair, like, for Christmas of 88 or something, I would park my ass in that thing and play Zelda on the 13-inch black and white RCA for hours on end, right? And that beanbag chair was so comfy, dude. Beanbag chairs were so legit in the 80s. They were the coolest. You were a cool kid if you had a beanbag chair, right? It was, holy cow, man. It was great. Oh, crap. I remember one Christmas. Listen, did y'all ever get those wrestling buddies with, like, Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan? I think I had a Sting wrestling buddy at one point. I don't really remember, but I remember having Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan wrestling buddies, dude. And we would, holy crap, man, hours of fun, dude. We would scoot the trampoline up close to the house and then set the wrestling buddy on the trampoline. And then before we knew it, we were doing our best Matt Hardy impressions. And we would just jump off the roof. And, you know, we had no sense. <laughs> we had no common sense. How I didn't end up in a full body cast at one point. 
is beyond me. Like, I just don't know. But yeah, we would jump off the house, the clubhouse, and just, you know, those wrestling buddies were just hours of fun, man. Macho man elbow drops, Hulk Hogan leg drops. Have your buddy hold one up so you could give it some sweet chin music. Like, it was the best, man. And then, of course, bring the baseball bat in the ring, and then you just start leveling everybody. <laughs> it's just, it's so good, man. Oh, shit, but that reminds me. We used to scoot the trampoline under the basketball goal, too, and we would just dunk for hours, man, like the J.R. Ryder in between the legs dunk, Dominique Wilkins, Michael Jordan. Man, I, that was fun. Putting the trampoline under the basketball goal, holy crap, man, so good. But one of my favorite Christmas presents of all time was 1990 run. 1990 run. I'm not halfway through this ham. It's not looking good for me. 1991 Don Russ baseball complete box set. And I don't know why that set, but that was the set that I remember most from being a kid. I got that and I was so excited. Like I would, I would just grab open just, this was a daily basis. Like I would, I would, I would flip open the box of cards because I've never been the type of guy to like order packs of cards or sets of cards and like keep them closed, right? Like I've got to open it and I've got to experience it. I'm not in the resale business, right? Like I just want to have fun. And so I would just open the box of cards and grab a random handful out from anywhere in the deck and just start laying the cards out, studying the back of the stats, looking to see who the rated rookies were, collecting the Diamond Kings. The Diamond King card was so badass to have. One of my favorite cards of all time is still Nolan Ryan Diamond King. I think it's, shoot, maybe 82. I think it's an 82 Diamond King. It's the same year as like the Ozzy Smith Padre Diamond King. It was one of my all-time favorites. And just laying those cards out and studying the stats. Like, I don't think, I don't think Don Russ did the back of the cards with the italicized highlighted black for the league leaders. I know Topps did. But I don't remember if Don Russ did, but... Any set I had, really, I would just study the backs of those cards. I would want to know how many home runs a person hit, what the batting averages were, because that would tell you, you know, because all you had really was a 30-minute episode of SportsCenter, and that didn't really tell you a lot. So that was back in the day when you only got your local games, which where I lived at, we would get the Braves on TBS, then you would get the Cardinals and the Cubs. Hey, I'm Simon. And so you had you had to live by the back of those cards because that's the only way you knew who was good and who wasn't good, right? You look for that 300 batting average or you look for 30 home runs. Like, that was it. You know, 20 wins, two-something ERA, big strikeout numbers, man. And just getting those cards and, like, seeing the new designs of them. But one of the coolest things was what the other set outside of the 91 Don Russ was 86 tops. Anytime I could come across a set of 86 tops, because in 86, I was only three years old. So 86 tops were well behind my time. But if I was ever at a card shop, or like I would dig through my older brother's collection, anytime I found a set of 86 tops, a card of 86 tops, I don't know what it was, but I loved it. I remember specifically having the Ozzie Smith 86 tops and the Don Mattingly 86 tops. Those are two of the ones that I remember having. And they were just, I, I just, I loved them, man. Like they looked old. 
I knew they were well before my time, and I thought they were just, like, worth money. Like, they just looked good. It gave you that feeling of just, like, man, that's some good nostalgic baseball, right? And I they, they that was just the one set for me. So I ordered, because I never had the complete set of 86 tops, but I think two years ago, I got a set of 86 tops, and I dug through those suckers, man. And really, that's one of the box sets. I want to pop open for Christmas because always during the holidays, one of my favorite things is to play video games and look at baseball cards. Like I'm going to play baseball stars tonight on Nintendo. I know it for a fact. Lefty and Babe and Pete, yo, I'm going to rake tonight. Joe's going to hit some home runs. Sandy and the the crew, man, they're going to pitch like a no-hitter. I don't know who I'm going to play, but I'm going to dominate for sure. <laughs> but also just cracking open baseball cards, and I'm probably going to do that tonight. And, you know, so go through, find my favorite ones, decide which ones I'm going to put in the top loader hard cases, maybe some I'll put in soft cases, maybe some that'll go in an album, and then the ones I don't like as much, those just have to go back in the box, because I don't care to break a complete box set, right? Because I've got, <laughs> that's what I have. I've got the same philosophy I had when I was a kid. Like, I'll just sit and decide and debate to myself which cards are good enough to put in a hard case. Like, right now in my office, I've got... I've got four hard cases right now. One's a Charlie Huff rookie, 93 upper deck, <laughs> autographed. No, not Charlie Huff rookie, Charlie Huff autograph. I think I said rookie. I don't remember. And it's a 93 upper deck, Charlie Huff autograph. He's on the Marlins. I've got a J.R. Richard autograph, a Dave Parker Diamond King autograph, and a Charlie Kerfeld 86 tops autograph. Those are the four right now that I have in my office of hard cases. And I will, I'll rotate them from time to time, man. And so I can just like see different cards because I just love to stare at them. Like I just love to look at cards, right? And so, but obviously study the backs, but man, just certain cards make me feel a certain way. And so, yeah, when I spread them out tonight, it's going to be a lot of debating over a lot of hands on which ones make the hard case, which ones make the album. I'll put some in the soft sleeves, Right, they they got they mean a little bit to me, but not a lot, because I don't have a lot of hard cases. Right, I'm still just like I was when I was a kid. I'm limited on the hard cases that I have, and then the rest just got to go back in the box. But I'm pumped. I'm gonna try to tonight. Daughter goes to sleep at seven. I'll see what I can get into and study some baseball cards. But give it a shot too if you get time tonight. And I, I recommend this every episode, right? But if you get time tonight, spread some cards out on the floor, right? Sit on the floor Indian style. Your butt will probably cramp from the hardwood floor, but get after it. But baseball cards always had to make it on the Christmas list. Like the Christmas list in the 80s, like that was the most vital thing of the year. And I remember, man, what was it like in the early 90s? We got a computer. And I think it was like a compact computer with dial-up AOL internet, right? Slow as can be. And we, yeah, I had a printer with it. And so I was so excited because I come up with the idea of that I was going to type out my Christmas list and it was going to be so organized. And that year, oh man, that was awesome. You know, write down like the Sega games that I wanted. Or in 92, I don't know if even, you, I think I was probably still getting Nintendo games like Baseball Stars and Contra and stuff like that. I don't really remember what I would have been asking for, but I remember, dude, do you remember, though, the dial-up old-school computers? Holy crap. How far have we come having the internet on our phones like it's nothing, and if it doesn't come instantly, we get mad? I don't personally because I know the struggle of my little sister picking up the phone when I'm trying to get on the internet and interrupting the whole connection. That was so wild that that was a thing. 
and you would start the internet process and it would take like 10 minutes to actually get the first web page loaded up because the internet would take so long to happen. But that's all we knew. So it was just so exciting. And, you know, so shit. I remember figuring out Napster. I mean, Napster was a whole nother level because it was just like you could download any song you want. Because, you know, when you're a broke kid with nothing but a paper route to spend, you know, $12, $13 on a CD. Because if it was a $9 CD, it was probably a crappy CD. But if it's like 12 or 13 bucks, 14.99 I think is what a new CD would top of. That's a lot of money for a kid that only makes $100 a month. So when we could start stealing our music, that was amazing. And I remember getting on Napster and like loading up the playlist that I wanted and just downloading it while I slept because that's how long that sort of stuff took. Like it would take 30 minutes to download one song. So if you've got eight songs, that's four hours right there. Just hope nobody calls or picks up the phone in the middle of the night because then it would ruin my whole playlist for the next day. Um, shit. The Christmas season for me now, this is, oh man, it's going to be good. Listen, there's all kinds of good stuff that comes with Christmas. Getting gifts and giving gifts, wrapping presents, drinking your favorite booze just to get through the family events. You know what I mean? Sneaking cigarettes outside because you just need a break. Okay. But most of all, the empty wrapping paper tube. Nothing is quite as exciting as an empty tube of wrapping paper because you get the chance to do every batting stance in the whole entire world. I'm not the only one that does that, right? It's like my wife's wrapping presents and then she'll have the empty wrapping paper tubes and she's like, hey, can you throw this in the trash? And I'm like, no, don't throw that in the trash. And I immediately pick it up and you got to start going through all of the swings. Like, I mean, no, like I've been doing that since I was like a kid, right? And it's just never went away. I'm a 37-year-old man. And yeah, I'm taking reps in front of the mirror the best I can do. My wife the other day, she's like, why are the wrapping paper tubes in the bathroom? And I'm like, well, I'm practicing my Gary Sheffield. And I'm really trying to master the Barry Bonds because the Barry Bonds one, it's, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to get it right. Like sometimes... With Barry Bonds, I'm really feeling the bat wiggle, then other times I'm not, you know? It's not as easy as, say, the King Griffey Jr., which doesn't have a lot of wasted motion, and it's just as smooth as a ham's beer, right? It's just not that easy. But it's sort of like, here's my night of wrapping presents, right? Here's what I wait for every day for the Christmas season. One, I need a Hormel meat and cheese tray. One to myself. I don't want to share it with guests. It's not for company, and my wife's not getting any of it. Honey, if you want any of this Hormel meat and cheese tray, you better buy your own because I need a whole tray. Give me my Hormel meat and cheese tray. Number two, give me my hams or old-style beer. And now I need something just disgusting, right? Something that I need to take ibuprofen with because that's the vibe that you have when you're swinging an empty wrapping paper tube. You just have to have the beer, right? And that's sort of just like the evening. So the wife's wrapping presents. I'm digging into the meat and cheese tray, right? And I'm I'm on the couch and because I don't wrap presents for shit, right? And I'm looking at her and I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for that first tube to finish up, right? And she's happy with me not wrapping presents because she knows that I'm not good at wrapping presents, right? I, I wrap them like a blind dumbass. It just doesn't work. So... It finishes, and as soon as I see 
that empty tube of wrapping paper, wrapping paper, bam, I bolt up immediately. I leave my hormone meat and cheese tray behind. I've told my wife she can't have any of it, and I trust her. But don't worry, I'm going to be keeping an eye on her while I'm going through my batting stances, and I immediately run for it, and I've got the empty tube in my hand. Now, holding an empty wrapping paper tube in your hand, knowing that every batting stance can happen at your will, you can do any stance you want with this empty wrapping paper tube. You have, in that moment, all of the power, all of the power you will ever need. When He-Man, He-Man holds up that sword and he says, I have the power. That's what you've got with the empty wrapping paper. So I grab it and I immediately take it and I immediately break out in Gary Sheffield. The first thing I do when I've got any handle in my hand is break out the Gary Sheffield. Me and my wife were doing lawn work like three weeks ago. I got a shovel in my hand. I'm doing the Gary Sheffield with the shovel. You better watch out. You might get concussed if you get too close to my chef because I got the wrist action and it's going good, honey. So don't get concussed. Don't get close to me when I'm in my zone, right? Don't get close to me. If I'm in the store and I'm at Harris Teeter and I go down the broom aisle, I don't need a broom and I'll do this. I swear to God, I'll do this. Even if I'm by myself in the store, I'll grab that broom handle I'll bust out a Griffey Jr. I'll bust out a Mo Vaughn. I might get a little Ricky on and get low because I want to get walked so I can steal second and third. That's what you call the Ricky Henderson triple. You get walked and you steal second and you steal third. The Ricky Henderson triple. So every handle I've ever picked up, right? When my newborn daughter was born, she was about seven pounds and I'm holding her and I'm like, I think I could get my hands around her to do the Sheffield, right? Can I do it? Can I do the Ron Gant? Can I do the Eric Davis? I think I could do the Eric Davis with my daughter because you just got to sort of swing her a little bit, right? So, I mean, it's just, I don't know what it is, though. It is, it's just so natural to grab anything and use it as a baseball bat and do a swing. I don't know what it is. It's just in my blood. Like, I'll be 80 swinging my cane, swinging my oxygen tank, right? It's just it, – because it, it's just – it's in my blood, like peeing in the front yard or drinking a hams or driving fast. I don't really know. It just – it happens. It's just – it's like breathing to me. It gives me life inside of me, right? And – you know, it's I don't I don't know what it is, but there are very few things that can you know in sports that can be looked at like the batting stance. The batting stance is the calling card for the hitter. It's like the bat signal up in the air. It's like Superman's cape. It's this small window where the hitter can go up to the plate and use their stance to intimidate the other guy, right? You know, like when you look at King Griffey Jr. and he's upright and he's swinging it and he's got his back elbow out, you look at the guy and you're like, he's standing confident and he looks way cooler than I do, right? You just like, that's what, that was the thing about Griffey's swing. Like he just looks so cool. Or like Ricky Henderson, he's crouching down real low. So it's a little hard to pitch to him, but he's also like really just, He's there, man. You can tell he is so focused on hitting that damn ball. You don't want any part of him. You just don't. The baseball bat is essentially like a sword. That You're like gladiator. 
right? Or or Brad Pitt on Troy, or who who played Gladiator? Russell Crowe, right? It's your sword, and you are there to conquer. And it's just like, but the whole process of the hitter coming up to the plate is just this beautiful thing, right? It's it's like the hitter's journey starts in the hole, right? You got your batter, you got the guy on deck, and you got the guy in the hole, right? It's like the guy sitting on the deck, and he's waiting for him, he's waiting to when he needs to get to that top step. So when he gets to the top step, he's like the predator and the pitcher is the prey. But the pitcher, pitcher doesn't see him yet because he's got to deal with this other guy like this weaker hitter, right? Like Eric Davis. Let's say he's hitting like number three or number four, so he's in the hole. And then the journey starts where the guy that's batting, he gets out or gets a hit. Then all of a sudden, the hitter gets on deck and he's a little closer to the prey and then he takes his warm-up swings you know back in the day when guys had sledgehammers on deck to warm up with now if that's not the most intimidating thing ever they need to bring that sort of thing back I get like analytics might not say might say that a sledgehammer will ruin your swing but if you're on deck swinging a fucking sledgehammer that pitcher might be a little intimidated by it it just lets the pitcher know that it's game on because I got a fucking sledgehammer, right? And then the guy on deck walks up to the plate. So he starts his walk to the plate. It's like a wrestler's intro music, like Psycho Sitter, the Undertaker, walking to the ring. And he's trotting. He's holding. He's warming up with the sledgehammer. He drops the sledgehammer, grabs his baseball bat. He's got the pine tar. He's got the Franklin batting gloves on. And he's walking to the plate, staring at the pitcher. And this, I feel like, is one of the most beautiful things in all of sports, right? Because when you play football, you, you have a team versus a team. When you play basketball, you have a team versus a team. Even though you do in basketball have the beautiful thing of, you know, you're Michael Jordan's and you're LeBron James, you know. Maybe not so much LeBron as Mike taking over the game, right? But in baseball, in this moment... It's a one-on-one matchup, right? The pitcher's got the defense behind him, but the offensive team only gets one guy up at a time. So this pitcher versus hitter, it's the ultimate athletic duel. It is a Western duel. Draw your guns and let's go. It's Doc Holliday versus Johnny Ringo. It is the premier matchup. It's like a drag race, right? And... It's one-on-one. It's I'm saying I'm going to throw this ball by you, and the hitter saying, no, you're not. I'm going to send this ball out of the park, right? And it's just this duel, right? Like, you have some guys that hog the plate, right? Like, Oscar Gamble was a guy who was like, his head would hang over the plate. Anthony Rizzo's a plate hog too, man. And a lot of times when that happens, that's the hitter establishing dominance. Like, you don't have the guts to throw inside on me. But not all hitters cover the plate right because that's based on their hitting style or maybe where the pitcher will send them but that is where the batting stance come in because I feel like you have to look a certain way like a Julio Franco Ruben Sierra like those guys they looked intimidating in the batter's box right now I don't even think Ruben Sierra ever hit 30 home runs in a season and Julio Franco wasn't a huge power hitter but those stances, like a Ron Gant stance as well, Mo Vaughn, they just looked like they meant business. Griffey Jr. looks like he means business. Mark McGuire comes to the batter's box. He's big and juiced, right? Crazy stuff. Sosa, 
and Juan Gonzalez, they would hold their bats pretty high up, right? I always felt like if you held the bat up high, that was the scariest of them all, right? And then at that point, you just have the duel, right? The pitcher may throw a couple bow ties, brush the batter back. Then the pitcher throws his best stuff, and the hitter gets a piece of it and fouls it off. And in that moment, the hitter's like, yo, I saw your best shit. Pitch that to me again because I won't miss twice. And these at-bats, if the pitcher makes a mistake, the hitter capitalizes. But then the pitcher might get the best of the hitter and fool him on some stuff. And to me, I know a lot of folks say baseball's boring. But that one-on-one matchup, to me, it's a beautiful thing. It's riveting. It's intense. It's captivating because it's one-on-one. And I know, you know, that happens so many times a game, at least 27 for each team, right? Because each team gets 27 outs. But man, it never gets old. But one of the cool things is about that, the pitcher-batter relationship, is at any moment, any pitcher can beat any hitter, right? You could have the best hitter in the league right now, like folks say DJ LeMay, who's a really good hitter. Or you got a guy like Pete Rose and Ricky Henderson or good contact guys, Tony Gwynn. But in any given moment, that pitcher can win. But vice versa, any moment, that hitter can win. I watched the old Cubs-Cardinals game the other day. Chuck McElroy was a reliever, lined a double to right center and scored a run or two, right? And it was like just right then. And that's one of the fun things I like too. So when you see a hitter that shouldn't hit a pitcher or a pitcher that shouldn't strike out a hitter and it happens, you get that surprise where you're like, oh, wow, like that really happened. And that's one of the things I enjoy about that as well. But the batting stance, man, I just, just nothing beats it in sports, right? It's, you know, it's the, like I said, it's the hitter's calling card, right? It's just in that moment when you've got that good batting stance, you feel cool, man. You feel like you're 16 again. And, you know, you're you're driving in your S10, you're cruising town, right? You remember this feeling? This is the this is it, man. This, this is the best I could equate it to. When I'm thinking about batting stances, I thought to myself, I said, what how would how does a batting stance feel to a major league baseball player, right? And I'm like, I thought like, well, what was a really good time for me? Listen, when I was 16, I had an S10 and I bagged it. You know, we shaved it, put Cadillac taillights on it. And I just remember I would be cruising town in that thing. And I had my CD visor, right? Remember when you had the visor cases that you would jam CDs in that you burned, right? Because you were stealing songs off Napster and your dial-up internet. I remember downloading songs that took all night. Like I would put them in the Napster queue, go to bed, then wake up in the morning and, you know, hopefully have like Dr. Dre Chronic 2000 or something that was downloaded. And just jamming CDs up in that visor and then you're cruising town and then maybe you see a girl in her car so you're like trying to get the the, the CD you want with the good Snoop Dogg song out of it so you pull that a CD visor but it's scratched shit so you're rubbing it on your leg and then you put it in the JVC CD player it skips you gotta eject it again and then wipe it off again and put it in that's the feeling that I equate the, the hitter's batting stance too, right? Because I felt so cool in that moment. Like my truck was the calling card, right? And that's got to be what a major league hitter feels like. You know what I mean? Like in that moment, like he's cruising town in his S10 with the CD visor case. So we would cruise town all night, man. It would go from McDonald's to Hardee's and we would just run the whole loop. We were idiots, man. We would just park up in town, loiter. That The cops would always come because they would say, you can't be loitering here. But we would drive our trucks, park them, 
pull out all the beer we had in the truck and sit there and drink it in Hardy's parking lot. If the cops would come, we would just, I don't know, hope to God they didn't come get us. But things were a little lax, and I don't condone any of that sort of behavior. But it's just, dude, like, but it's not really just batting stances, right? Like, I still to this day, I do a ton of batting stances, but I do a ton of pitching motions too. Like, my favorite pitching motion that I do on a daily basis is a mix between Jake Arrieta and Tim Lincecum, and it's so fun. I do the Tim Lincecum delivery, and I just feel like I'm about to no-hit the Padres, right? It's so good. I One of my other favorites is, like, I'll do the Greg Maddox wind-up. I've got the Nolan Ryan wind-up down, Pat, and that, to me, feels the most powerful out of everything because I'm working on my high leg kick, too, so, like, every day I feel like my leg kick gets higher, and I feel like I could throw 95, right, even though I could probably throw, like, 72 as hard as I absolutely could, and, yeah, dude, but it's just, man, like, I batting stances, dude. It's, yeah, anything I ever pick up, that's just what it is. And when the empty wrapping paper tubes come about, <laughs> I'm all about swinging the empty wrapping paper tube. So listen, though, these are my absolutely favorite empty wrapping paper tube batting stances, the ones that I've been preparing for all year long, the ones that I drip my blood, sweat, and tears in front of the mirror, in the bathroom mirror, the downstairs mirror, I've knocked a couple lamps down, right? These are the these are the stances that I live to do. Number one is obviously the Gary Sheffield, right? That's just innate in my ability, right? Like I could be at a funeral and be holding my wife's umbrella and do the Gary Sheffield. Like it's just in my genes. Like I can't not do it. It's like blinking. Like if there's anything I can pick up at any given moment, like if I'm waiting in a doctor's office and I'm holding an ink pen, I'm going to do the Gary Sheffield, right? And it's just a phenomenal swing. The fast action of it is wild. I don't know how his wrist hold up to. I don't know what size of bat he held, but that just the speed of that was crazy. And his swing was described as having savage speed with pinpoint control, which is handy because it's the number one drunk softball swing you could possibly do. His his coach for the Brewers, he was drafted by Milwaukee, was a guy named Tom Treblehorn. And he said Gary Sheffield's bat was so fast, he could turn on a 38 caliber caliber bullet. Crazy. But one thing I didn't know about Gary Sheffield is he's a top 20 dude all time in walks. For his career, he walked more than he struck out. And he's hit over 500 home runs, which is completely crazy, right? I've sort of always, I guess lately, over the past few years, dismissed Gary Sheffield as just like, I'd put him in the same category as like a Sammy Sosa, right? Like, oh, whatever. He's got just over 500 home runs. He had the same trainer as Barry Bonds, so he may have taken steroids. I don't really know, right? But really... Gary Sheffield was a gifted hitter, and I don't think gets enough love for Hall of Fame talk when you talk about steroid-era guys, right? Because his swing was dangerous, it was fast, and the fact that he was over 500 home runs was a power guy and still walked more than he struck out is super impressive. And it's crazy, too. I'm looking at Gary Sheffield's numbers. He never struck out 100 times in a season. He only struck out over 80 times twice in his whole career and that was when he was 35 and 39 otherwise like he had seasons where he walked 142 times and struck out 66 times right and he played ball till he was 40 so you gotta believe that the Gary Sheffield stance is just when it is like when I do that stance I just get in the fucking zone man 
and it is one. And to me, that's that might be my all-time wrapping paper batting stance, but it's hard, man, right? Because also next on my list of all-time wrapping paper stances is Ken Griffey Jr., Ken Griffey Jr. was that guy, man. Ken Griffey Jr. is the reason why I cruised town, well, my neighborhood, on my GT Performer with a backwards hat in Oakley's on. I remember saving up money to get my first fitted hat, and the second I put it on, bro, I felt it. I felt it in my veins, man. I just felt the power of the kid. I felt immediately cool. I felt like I could couple skate with the hottest girl at the skating rink. Like it just didn't matter. I had the GT performer on and my backwards fitted hat with my fake Oakleys that I bought at the county fair. And it was just it, dude. Now, Griffey Jr. swing is a work of art, man. It is beautiful. It is just smooth. And what's so amazing about it is there's no wasted motion for one. And also, he it's so effortless, right? What is it's the um I, I don't know if it's a playoff game or not, but he hit in one game a couple home runs off David Cohn. I don't remember if it was that 95 ALCS or not. I think it could have been. But Griffey Jr. hit these home runs. Oh, it's he sort of did with every home run, but I feel like these were monsters. And he would just swing the bat, and it looked like it was nothing to him. It was just this effortless swing, right? And when it happened, you just watch the ball fly, and it's just like, how did he do that? Like his hands and his head barely move when he swings, and it's just this fluid motion that's like, you know, writing in cursive where it just flows and there, there's not a hitch in it at all. And it just, when he's doing it, right, he's got the bat up close to him, elbow out, and he's just like doing that little movement. And he's standing basically upright. And when he's doing that movement, it's like the coolest strut in the batter's box ever because his batting stance matches who he was as a person, the coolness of the hat and the swag and the catches in the outfield and just the amazing play that he had. It all matched and it all worked perfect. But then he had the shoes, right? He had he, he was probably the first baseball player with just his own pair of shoes that weren't cleats, right? He had like the, the Griffey Air Max with the air pockets in it. And you know, if you're in junior high, Right, high school when you were a kid, the most important thing was having a pair of Nike high tops with the air pockets in them. And the Griffies had the air pockets in them. And I remember being a kid and debating air pockets on Nike shoes with my friends and like pushing them, seeing like, yo, yeah, these air these air pockets are big. Like you don't even know how high I can jump with these, right? And how fast I can run with them. And Griffey shoes had good air pockets because I don't think they just had the back air pockets, but they may have had like like two or three air pockets in them, which like made you even cooler because then when you're wearing the starter jacket to school and you got the air pocket Nikes, it I mean, you're 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 cool, right? And then you got the fake Oakleys on and you're rocking, man. It's great. Oh, but listen, I have a cool um what is it? A cool Griffey stat. Griffey became the second player, the first player being Willie Mays, to hit fifty home runs in a season in which he won a gold glove. Him and Willie Mace are the only guys to do it. And on top of that, imagine that. 50 home runs. 
we get a little immune to that number. Like that number maybe doesn't mean as much because like you're sort of spoiled by like the 60 home runs of Sosa and the 70 of Bonds and McGuire. But 50 home runs, do you realize there were years and years when nobody hit 50 home runs? I think George... Was it George Foster hit 50 home runs? And then it took like 20 years for Cecil Fielder to hit 50 home runs, right? There was a gap between guys that hit 50 home runs. Not a lot of dudes hit 50 home runs before the steroid era. So 50 is, just let that sink for a second. 50 home runs is a huge number. But when it's done by your gold glove center fielder, to have a 40-40 season, that Jose Canseco had is really impressive, and guys that have had 40-40 seasons, but to hit 50 and have gold glove caliber defense might be more impressive than just a 40-40 season. And on top of that, Griffey is the only guy to do that in back-to-back seasons, which is unreal. So for with over 300 games, he was that guy. Gold glove 50 home runs. And how many home runs was he hitting those seasons? Those were like 56 home run seasons or something that he hit back-to-back, right? Which maybe would have been in 97 and 98. I don't know the exact years, but if you hang out with me for a second, I can get the years. I don't have stuff memorized. Uh, So let's look. Griffey Jr., well, he hit 50 home runs. Well, Griffey only hit 50 home runs twice in a season, and one of those was his MVP season. And that was it, 97 to 98. He had 56 home runs back-to-back years. 147 ribbies, 146 ribbies. He was slugging 646 and winning a gold glove. That's unbelievable. And in 98, hell, who the hell got the 98 AL MVP over Griffey? Juan Gonzalez. Juan Gonzalez wasn't the player that Griffey was that season. Juan batted better. He had the same on-base percentage, nearly the same slugging. Juan batted 318, hit 45 homers, 157 ribbies, and he was on juice, and Griffey wasn't on juice, had a higher war, won the gold glove, hit 56 home runs. It's a hindsight, Griffey's the MVP that year, hands down. No more Garcia Parra and Jeter, though, had higher war seasons that year than what Griffey did. Well, hell, no more hit 35 home runs. He was the damn good shortstop. While he was at it, Nomar Garcia Parr, really good shortstop, right? You ever think about, listen, soak this in for a second, right? Is Ken Griffey Jr., like, I'm going to see how many guys have hit 600 home runs. Think about this for a second. How many guys would be in the 600 home run range? Well, obviously, you've got Bonds and Aaron in the 700s, and then Babe Ruth in the 700s, and 600s. Would you have Sammy Sosa hit 600 home runs, Willie Mays, Griffey Jr., Alex Rodriguez, because Alex Rodriguez, I think it's like 696. Okay, hold on. I got the list coming up now. Oh, shoot. Uh, Jim Tomey's a 612 home run guy. Then Griffey, Mays, Albert Pujols is at 662. Then you get to A-Rod, and then you get your 700 guys, right? Check this out. Outside of Griffey and Tomey, right, you had like Barry Bonds, Alex Rodriguez, Sammy Sosa, those are three guys in the 600 home run club that took anabolic steroids, right? Not disrespecting their numbers, right? I think Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame. Not A-Rod because he failed drug tests, like actually failed them. But the steroid era was the Wild Wild West, right? That's not what I want to talk about now. But no disrespect to the numbers that the steroid guys pulled up. But Griffey Jr. hit 630 home runs with a lot of injuries 
and no steroids. I don't believe Griffey took anything at all. He had a natural decline in his career. He didn't look like he took steroids, but oftentimes you can't, it doesn't really, you can't really tell by the way somebody looks. But do you ever sit back and think Griffey had back to back 56 home run seasons as a natural athlete? He had 630 home runs naturally. Alex Rodriguez only had 66 more career home runs than Ken Griffey Jr. did, and he took steroids probably most of his career. Could you imagine if Griffey geared up? I mean, he probably had at least 100 more home runs, 730. If he avoided a lot of injuries, could be productive well into his 40s, you'd have some serious numbers, right? Because you had years where Griffey was hurt, playing 144 games at the age of 37, only hitting 30 home runs. His age 38 season, he played 143 games, only hit 18 home runs. If he's on steroids, you could add 20 to that number immediately. Sort of the same with his age 39 season. He hit 19 home runs in 117 games. You can add 20 home runs to that. You could say he would at least have 40 home runs just by looking at those seasons, right? But then he had a year with Cincinnati. He played 70 games. The next year, he played 53 games, right? That was a total of like 21 home runs. If he's on steroids that year, add 40 home runs to that total. I just found him 80 extra home runs right now. So it's nuts. That's just so interesting to me. Like I don't, I'm not, like I said, I'm not talking crap about the steroid guys or anything like that. But man, just could you imagine, dude? But I better keep going with my list, dude. I won't shut up. Jeez, man. <laughs> I'm glad you guys put up with me and listen to this. Thank you. But listen. Oh, listen to this, though. Other cool stuff about Griffey. Listen. In 1989, the Mariners didn't want to call Griffey up. He was too young. You talk about years of control. They didn't want it. They wanted him. Stay in AAA, right? So during spring training in the Cactus League, they they played Griffey in the starting lineup against every tough lefty they faced, right? And Griffey Jr. hit every one of those bastards, every tough lefty as a 19-year-old in the Cactus League that they put Griffey up against in spring training. He hit him, so they had no choice. They had to call him up to the majors, and that's how you got Griffey in, right? Okay, check this out. My next... My next one, you grab that empty wrapping paper tube, do the Julio Franco. Do the Julio Franco. You stand in that batter's box, do your toes and your knees a certain way, and you take that bat, and you can't just put the empty wrapping paper tube over your head. You've got to, like, hoist it up. you got to take your elbow and really kick it back high, and your your front arm's got to really dig into your chin, and you just got to do that stance and just put that bat up high and get you a good rocking motion. And when you do that in the kitchen, stand in front of the mirror with your Hormel meat and cheese tray, you're in, man. The Julio Franco is the I'm 10 beers deep in wiffle ball swing. It's the one where it's like everything is on the table. I'm hammered. I'm good. I've already called my wife to come pick me up, and I'm doing the Julio Franco. It's good, and you know the stance works. Julio Franco hit a home run, a major league home run at 48 years old with his grandson in the stands. Julio Franco is probably the only grandpa ever to hit a home run in major league baseball. Badass. And what's cool is, you know, Julio Franco was the last eligible major league player to be able to wear the nacho helmet, which is the no ear flap helmet, right? And that was probably like in 2008 or something like that. And also, listen, another 
fun, interesting Julio Franco stat. Julio Franco is one of eight dudes to have 4,000 professional hits, which includes like the minor league games as well, right? One of eight guys to have 4,000 professional hits. In that group is Derek Jeter, Hank Aaron, Ty Cobb, Pete Rose, Ichiro, Stan Musial, and some other guy who was like a 28-year minor leaguer named Jigger Stats. He played 2,800 minor league games and had 4,000 hits. They should put him in the MLB Hall of Fame for that shit. But isn't that wild? Julio Franco is in that class because I think his longevity, like, I'm not, I don't know if I'm saying Julio Franco should be a Hall of Famer, but I've always said that I thought being healthy and taking care of your body like Julio's done is a skill that could be rewarded in the Hall of Fame. I think it takes a lot of intelligent play and hard work to stay healthy for that damn long. And I think him being in this club of eight guys with 4,000 hits sort of proves that, man. And how guys vote for the Hall of Fame now, you know, you get guys that get looked at, re-looked at, based on wins above replacement. And Julio Franco, hell, he's a 43.6 war guy. I'm pretty sure Harold Baines is like the 38 range, and David Ortiz is like 50 or something like that. He could easily be a Hall of Famer, which is sort of, I'll t- I mean, listen, do I really think he should be a Hall of Famer? I mean, probably not, but I mean, like, wow, that is the, he, Julio Franco may not be a Hall of Famer, but what he did in his baseball career, and quite frankly, is still doing wherever he's at somewhere, is legendary, right? And like Bartolo Colon, he's got a 45.8 war. That's like probably as high as Sandy Koufax or something like that. Like 45.6 might not be much lower than Tom Glavin. I'm not too sure. I can tell you in a second. Tom Glavin's, oh, Tom Glavin's double that. But like Bartolo Colon, like I think that's impressive to pitch till you're 45, right? That's intense. You know, he didn't get to pitch in 2019 or 20, which is a shame, but the guy was productive as recently as 2016. That's wild, wild. But the Julio Franco, dude, like so crazy with that 4,000 number. It's it's so wild, dude. But who do I um, Who do I got here on the list next? Okay, this is it. If you, <laughs> if you, you, I got to check out my daughter. Yeah, she's doing good. I'm watching my daughter on the uh, monitor. I have her, I'm watching her on an iPad. She's the sweetest thing ever, man. She makes all my life so much better. It's crazy. The, uh, <laughs> the next stance, get the wrapping paper tube. Get you three wrapping paper tubes because you're going to need them all scattered around the house. Ricky Henderson, the man of steel. Listen, this guy, he would get low. Listen, back in like the 80s, I don't know if he did it his whole career, but I've got visions of like games in the 80s and 90s of him being on the athletics and getting so low. He's got that back kicked out back, and he's got his weight on his back leg, and he would get so low, he will almost be eye level with the catcher, right? You got a guy, Ricky Henderson, 401 lifetime on-base percentage. He had two or three seasons where he hit about 28 home runs, right? This guy, this stance is it, man. You got to get low to force the walk, but also put that weight on that back leg, generate that power. Generate that power with that wrapping paper tube. Get after it. But then, 
when Ricky swings and Ricky knows he's got a home run, Ricky pops his collar out of the batter's box, takes that wide turn around first base. You do the whole thing with that empty wrapping paper tube. You get in the living room. You swing that wrapping paper tube. Flip that bat out. Flip it out real quick. After you hit that home run, you take that wide turn around the dining room table, pop that collar, and get going on it. And that is it. Slap your significant other on the ass when you cross home plate, a.k.a. the couch. It's on, dude. And his, listen, a Ricky Henderson at bat, I don't care if he hit a home run, walked. Hell, if Ricky struck out, his at-bats were fucking riveting. He would be in the box, shuffling around, moving his bat around, staring down the pitcher. Staring down the pitcher between bats. He'd take a ball. He'd stare that ball in. If the ball was outside, he'd stare the ball in and hunker over the plate and just stay over the plate so the catcher couldn't throw the ball back. He's in no rush, and he's, like, flexing his whole body or something, right? Like he's about to do, like, some jujitsu stuff. Cross back over the plate, stares at the pitcher. Just stare at the guy. So when you got the empty wrapping paper tube, just stare at your wife. Stare her down. Stare your husband down. Stare him down. Let him know. Let him know what's up, right? And it was just. Then if he ground out second, it didn't matter because you knew. You watched the best at bat ever, man. And like I said, the Ricky Henderson triple. Get walked, steal second, steal third. Ricky's the only guy. Listen, there are games that I've watched that I've uploaded clips on YouTube where Ricky Henderson comes to bat, and by the fifth pitch of the game, he's already scored. He hit a single first swing of the bat, steal second on the second pitch of the game, steal third on the fourth pitch of the game. Then the guy hits the fifth pitch for a sack fly. Ricky scores. Right? It's crazy. Fifth pitch of the game. Ricky's at home. Listen, I think, and listen, this thought does not did not originate with me. I did a Ricky Henderson post about four days ago on my Instagram, and there were a lot of comments that were saying, Ricky Henderson, I think, is the best player that's ever played this game. That's what people were commenting. People were saying Ricky Henderson's the best ever to play the game. Ricky could be the best ever. He's arguably the best ever. People don't talk about Ricky being the best player ever. And I sat back and I said, holy shit. I said, I think they're right. I've never thought about Ricky Henderson in the Mount Rushmore of baseball. I've never thought about Ricky as quite possibly being the best guy that's ever played the game in Major League Baseball, right? And where I start at... I can look at this and say, well, they 100% have a case. Listen, right? If you watch football, there's a good quarterback like Joe Montana, Tom Brady, Terry Bradshaw. These quarterbacks can run the offense and take over the game and win you Super Bowls. It happens. In basketball, you've got your LeBron James and Michael Jordans, your Larry Birds, your Magic Johnsons that can take over a game and lead their team, right? But baseball, outside of the very beautiful one-on-one confrontation between the hitter and the pitcher, right? That pitcher only gets, that hitter only comes to the plate four times a game. And a starting pitcher can only do so much because they only come out every four to five days or every three days if you're playing old school baseball, right? But Ricky Henderson, could almost force, I believe Ricky Henderson could force his will 
on a baseball game like Michael Jordan could on a basketball court, like Joe Montana could on a football field. Force their will. Listen, Ricky Henderson's batting stance was so low. He would get low because he wanted to make it harder for you to pitch to him. Ricky Henderson played 25 years in Major League Baseball, had plenty of time for a poor performance dip. He ended his career at a lifetime 401 on base percentage. Ricky Henderson plate appearances had 13,346 plate appearances, 10,961 at bats. He kept an on he got on base 40% of the time. 13,000 over 13,000 at bats. 40% of the time he gets on base. What in the world? On top of that, Ricky Henderson, Ricky Henderson has more runs scored than any major league baseball player that's ever played the game. He scored more runs than everybody. Ricky scored more points in Major League Baseball than anybody. So you look at a guy like Ricky Henderson, he he can get walked, right? He can steal second, he can steal third, and he can get to home. Ricky Henderson was that guy, right? Guys like Vince Coleman, Vince Coleman stole 100 bases before. Lou Brock could steal. I don't think, I know Vince Coleman didn't, and there's no way Lou Brock did, had an on-base percentage of over 400. Listen, Lou Brock's on-base percentage, 343. And Vince Coleman's was probably like 320 or something like that. Ricky had that speed and was getting on base at 40% of the time. Ricky had seasons. He was getting on base, a 439 on base, 423, 411, 425. Crazy stuff. Ricky Henderson got on base 42% of the time when he was 40 years old, right? You want to talk about longevity being impressive and taking hard work? 25 years of baseball, Ricky Henderson was productive for every damn one of them, right? And to get back to the runs and the walks and also 3,000 hits in his career, 3,055, Ricky Henderson, I'll say it again, force his will on a baseball game. Is there any player that could do that? Like Barry Bonds, like being able to do what he did, you know, Barry Bonds had a 40-40 season, right? He was the second guy to do it. Barry Bonds hit all the home runs, right? Ricky Henderson won titles. Ricky Henderson got traded at the trade deadline in 1989 from the Yankees back to the Athletics in 89, the A's won a World Series. At the trade deadline in 1993, Ricky got traded from the Athletics to the Blue Jays. Blue Jays won a World Series, right? Ricky's got two rings that I think he was a big part of because of what he brought to the game. And I don't know if there's another player that's done it to the extent of what Ricky Henderson's done. I think, I'm, I'm not a baseball expert, right? I'm a moron. Right? I got a mic that I bought for $100 from B and H, right? I'm not a professional, right? I'm not Bill James, but I've watched I watch a lot of baseball because it's just fun, right? But my opinion may be completely crazy, but I don't know that it is because I think a lot of people feel that way. And I think you've got to put Rick on the Mount Rushmore of Major League Baseballs because I think he is the best player at forcing his will 
upon a game because he could get on the bases and just do whatever he wanted. Combined with 3,000 hits, 4,000, uh, 3,000 hits, 400 on base percentage. And the guy hit 297 home runs. Crazy. He hit 21, 28, 28, and 24 home runs. Those were his highs. Hell. He hit 20. Oh, hold on, hold on. He hit 28 home runs one year and stole 87 bases. 28 home runs is a power hitter. That's a power hitter. He had one, two, three. He had three seasons where he had tw- at least, if you want, maybe you won't call 24 home runs a power hitter. 28 home runs is a power hitter. He had two seasons where he hit 28 home runs and stole 65 bases and 80 bases. That's just a reflection on what the guy did. And both of those seasons were, one was a 439 on base and one was only a 358 on base. But just crazy stuff, man. So, but the Ricky Henderson at bat, dude, Ricky is just so cool, man. Guy was dripping with swag. Unreal. Who do I got next on my list? Oh, shoot. Okay, listen, Eric Davis, dude. Okay, I better hurry up. I'm at 44 minutes. I don't know how much longer you guys will listen to me. I don't have much left. I apologize. Listen, Eric Davis. Eric Davis would come to the dish so relaxed. It's like he just didn't have a care in the world and was just supremely confident, like Doc Holliday in Tombstone, man. He's drunk, playing poker all night. He's flipping his cup while Johnny Ringo's just freaking out, and he would just come to the plate, and he's just standing there. I believe he had a little bit of an open stance, right? Now, this is what you got to do with the wrapping paper tube, right? So Rick, so Eric is standing there, and he's just wiggling that bat. So he's got the bat in his hand, and he's wiggling it with his wrist. So he's not really moving his arms or his body, but his wrist, they're just circling, buddy. And that baseball bat will swing so far out, it was almost pointing to the dugout opposite of him, right? Just swinging it, right? Then when that pitch comes, I'm going to do my best to explain this. He would take his hands and bring them down and sort of like, charge up, right? You know what I'm saying? Watch, Go to YouTube and watch that Eric Davis swing. He's got that bat, and he brings his hands down and sort of just powers up. Like, he's sitting there, and he's just like, he's got the bat, and he's, he's like, he just brings those hands down, like Cecil Fielder would do it, too, where they would, like, bring their hands down to sort of, like, generate the power, right? It's unreal, and that's what Eric Davis would do, so he would go from that confident I'm just mellow. I took four Xanax, just chill batting stance, and just bring those hands down and just power up and just crank that ball out, man. And his swing, dude, just looks so powerful. I mean, just unreal because he would just unleash. Just go. He was like a cougar, man. The guy was like a wild cat where, like, the pitcher's the prey and he's just sitting there. He ain't moving, but he's waggling his tail a little bit. That's what the bat's doing. It's like the cat's tail. And then when that pitch comes, he eats your face, dude. But also, Eric always had a huge water red, man. I love The scene when he hits the home run off Dave Stewart in the World Series, he's got just this huge water chaw in his mouth, like the size of the baseball that he just hits out of the park. And I love it, man. But when he does that, like, power dip down where he, like, drops his hands and builds up that power, and, like, him and Cecil Fielder would do it, man. And it's, like, what you do in the backyard. But those guys would do it in major league games. And to bring your hands down like that until to catch up to big pitches, I mean, crazy bat speed, dude. Eric Davis was a freak, man. And I watched, so I watched that clip 
when he hit the home run off Dave Stewart the other day. And listen, Eric Davis wasn't a big guy at all. The guys walk into the dugout and they do a close-up of him. Dude, and he's got the smallest waist, man. He's a skinny but muscular guy. And I think a lot of that was just his bat speed and just the power that he could generate from that simple stance. And there where he does the dip down where his hands dip down and just cranks it out, man. He's it's like it's like a it's like the hitter's version of a pitcher windup where he just winds up and just goes for it, right? Where like some hitters may crank the bat up. Like you know the Albert Bell stance where he's got his hands out and then the pitch comes. He like brings like his hands in the bat up to generate his power. Like guys like Davis and Cecil Fielder will like sort of bring him down a little bit to sort of get that like pendulum, like that movement, like that good motion just to sock the ball. And wow, man, Eric Davis, though, if you can't tell, one of my favorite players ever, but do get your get your uh, empty wrapping paper to do the Eric Davis. If you don't have any red man on hand, listen, get your about 10 Hershey's Kisses, jam them in your mouth, and just spit. Because it'll be chocolate spit. It'll look like real chew, trust me, right? But the next the next swing, I'll talk about two more, man. Daryl Strawberry's dude. Wow, Daryl Strawberry. He had a bat waggle that was sort of like Barry Bonds, and he... Daryl Strawberry did the same dip down to an extent, not as severe, but to the extent that Heavy C, Cecil Fielder, and Eric Davis would, right? But what was so beautiful about Daryl Strawberry swing, he had the lefty swing, and it was smooth. It was smooth in the same vein as like a Will Clark or a Griffey Jr., right? And when he would bring his hands down, he would like do like, he would, he would do a leg kick, but it seemed like he would like do his leg kick and, like, the weight transfer, it's like his body would, like, go back and his weight would, like, come back. And then he would swing with this rush of forward energy. Like, his hand goes down, his elbow goes back a little bit, the leg kick comes out. And it's like his leg doesn't kick straight up, but it kicks, like, straight up and, like, he comes back. And then he's got this forward momentum built and he just socks the ball. He hit the roof of Olympic Stadium in Montreal back in the day, like just such power, but smooth, man. And one of my favorite pictures ever to upload are pictures of Daryl Strawberry during his swing, like before he actually swings the bat, but like when he's tuning up the band and does the leg kick, because you look at him and it looks like like a freaking figure skater or something where like he's just properly positioned and you can see his whole body and swing about to all come forward and just explode, right? And that's a, a fun swing with the MP wrapping paper tube. Like, I love it. But Will Clark, man, Will Clark's swing was the same way, too. Will Clark hit his first career home run off Nolan freaking Ryan. Like, how crazy is that? And Will Clark, man, Will Clark, I would say, probably has the second prettiest swing after Ken Griffey Jr., right? It was just like he had at least early in his career. Like, I remember the home run Will Clark hit an 88 against the Cubs. And at that point, he had, like, a close stance. And he's got the bat, and he's just back there waggling the bat, and it looks scary. Because when he's got his back somewhat turned to the pitcher with the close stance, it's like he's hiding something, right? Like, he's he's hiding a lot of his cards. And then when he would just swing that bat and that finish, it was a little bit of, I feel like, a quicker finish than what Griffey was, but he would have sort of the same thing, man. Left arm up, elbow out, 
right hand behind him looking in the air. Just this perfect line, like constellations in the sky, dude. And Will Clark swing a work of art, man. Like, that's a guy. And that's a guy that I, th I think Will Clark should probably be a Hall of Famer because I just think of certain guys that were just legendary, right, in the generation that they played. And Will Clark was that dude. 56.5 war. That's probably, if it comes to wins above replacement, he's more valuable than what David Ortiz was. Yeah, he's slightly more valuable than what David Ortiz is. David Ortiz took steroids and is probably going to be a first bout Hall of Famer. That's fine. David Ortiz is a baseball Boston legend. Will Clark should be a Hall of Famer. I think 100%. If not for anything, but well, I, I won't make a joke about a swing. His swing, yes, is a Hall of Fame swing. But the guy, dude, 303 batting average, 284 home runs, 2,100 hits. Listen, he's sort of like a guy like Dick Allen, right? His counting stats aren't crazy, but a 137 OPS plus, 56.5 worth, 303 batting average with a 384 on base, nearly 500 slugging. Huge, huge deal. Now, listen, hold on. I'm going to stop for a second. I've been mentioning a lot of wins above replacement on here, right? And I all I talk about is me not being a big data guy. But I like to use wins above replacement as a quick reference to compare players from different generations because that's what the stat is intended for, right? I function off the eye test. And a lot of people might look at Will Clark and say, oh, 56.5, like that's not jack shit, right? But I use that number to compare to David Ortiz because people would say David Ortiz, automatic Hall of Famer, right? But folks may think, Will Clark, what, what, 284 career home runs? Like, what the hell's that mean? Will Clark was a damn good, valuable player for his whole damn career. Will Clark retired at 36. Last team he played for was the Cardinals, right? Will Clark never had a bad year. Will Clark never had a down year. He was just always good. Multiple times, MVP votes. One, two, four times he was in the top five. Once top two, once top four. Hell, that time he got second in MVP. Will Clark got MVP in 89. He was second. Will Clark was second in MVP voting in 89. He lost. Oh, shit. He, I knew it. He lost to Kevin Mitchell, man, because Kevin Mitchell had that crazy year. 47 home runs, 125 ribbies. Yeah, so Kevin Mitchell wanted that. He was a better offensive player, I guess. But, I mean, Will Clark could have been the more valuable player that season for sure. From a wins above replacement standpoint, he was. Probably because Will Clark was a better defender, I would imagine. Even though uh, Kevin Mitchell made that catch. Crazy stuff, right? The, Will, the, the Kevin Mitchell barehanded catch. Crazy biz, man. But the Will Clark swing, dude, it's glorious. And Will Clark, like, I don't know what it was about the guy, but he just, he looked. Like a badass, man. He always just had this swagger about him where he looked cool. He always sort of looked angry, but I think he was a nice guy. And the swing's legendary The Will Clark is. Hold on. <laughs> I can't stop there. Okay. There are, three, there are four other guys I had on my list. Albert Bell, Crime Dog, John Cruck, Barry Bonds, right? Those are four swings you got to do. John Cruck. <laughs> John Cruck. His best batting stance ever was 1993, right? And he would just come to the plate, stand straight up, wave his bat so far in the air, huge mullet, thick eye black. Now, the thing about John Crook's mullet is I feel like it was wet 
all the time, like a professional wrestler. Like, you ever wonder, like, how professional wrestlers always had hair wet 24-7? Like, why is Jake the Snake Roberts' hair always wet, right? Like, he's going to get pneumonia, right? John Crook's hair was always wet. And I think, like a professional wrestler, he would either, one, wet it, or two, he had just showered from the night before because he was at the bar. Or three, maybe he just dumped, I don't know, a few Miller High Lifes on it. Like, I'm not too sure. I'm inclined to say he was at the bar and took a shower before his first at bat before each game. But John Crook, dude, strong, sturdy mullet, man. He had a, the open stance, standing straight up, the bat waving just all over the place. He's got the gut. It's unreal. But listen, listen to this. It gets better. There's a game on YouTube from 1993, Marlins and Phillies, right? And Charlie Huff's pitching, which is a treat to watch Charlie Huff pitch, right? So during this game, in the bottom of the first inning, because they're playing at the vet, John Crook comes to bat, right? And at this point of the year, John Crook's batting 362. He leads the league in walks, on-base percentage, seventh in slugging. He's clean in house, right? But... The announcer talked to John Cruck before the game, and John Cruck said that he had a punctured lung, a cracked rib, and a bad knee. Right? I repeat that. John Cruck was playing baseball for a portion of 1993 while he was batting 362 with a punctured fucking lung, a cracked rib, and a bad knee. Now that screams bar fight to me. Like I'm watching this clip and hear the announcer go through John Crook's injuries, right? And like guys like Aaron Judge and John Carlos Stanton, they'll like sit out for like a sprained finger. And it's just like John Crook's playing the game. He's got a fucking punch your lung. Like maybe he should go to the emergency room, right? Like we, I need to call an ambulance here. Like, do you need help? Can you, I don't know, breathe, man? And I know him, Mitch, Lenny, Dutch, all probably went out drinking the night before. Someone got in a fight. John Crook probably beat the shit out of the guy, bit his ear off. I don't even want to know what Lenny Dykstra did. He could have murdered the guy. That guy's wild, dude. And, <laughs> I mean, Lenny, dude, could you imagine going out with those guys? Lenny Dykstra? Lenny Dykstra, I think if you went out with Lenny Dykstra, it would be like going out with Alan from The Hangover. Like, you're not going to remember anything, and you're going to wake up the next morning and just have to piece everything together, right? And be like, what in the world just happened? Like, that's got to be partying with Lenny Dykstra. Then Dutch, Darren Dalton, the heartthrob of the group with the, the slickest mullet, man. Like, and then Mitch Williams, dude. Like, those are four, four mullets right there, man, that are strong and that are ready to party. Like, it is just crazy stuff, dude. And so, yeah, those scream punctured lung, crack rib, bad knee. Bro, that's a bar injury, dude. Like, the guy, he's in trouble, man. He's in trouble. But still batting 362, which I absolutely love. That's grit, man. I dig it, dude. The crime dog, crime dog should be in the Hall of Fame too, man, because I think without Fred McGriff, the Braves don't win the World Series in 95. Fred McGriff played in the World Series in 95 and 96 with the Braves. Braves won in 95, lost in 96. But besides the Braves losing to the Yankees in the 96 World Series, Fred McGriff absolutely raked. Fred McGriff was a phenomenal regular season player. Fred McGriff was a legendary, po okay, maybe not legendary, but he was a phenomenal postseason player and regular season player. Fred McGriff, hands down, should be in the Hall of Fame. But what I like about McGriff when I would bat left-handed most of the time, I would do, when I was a kid, 
I would do the Fred McGriff stance because it was most comfortable to me because he sort of crouched down a little bit, but also he did the helicopter follow through because sometimes like if I would swing and like my bat was heavy enough and I would do like the one handed finish, it hurt my shoulder, man. And so I would, so I started doing the helicopter swing, right? And that's what Fred McGriff do. His fall through, he would sort of helicopter it because it'd be less tension on his shoulder. So the helicopter follow through, <laughs> legit from the crime dog, man. But listen, the Albert Bell, so Albert Bell gets down, he sort of sticks his butt out and he's got the bat out away from his body and it's just sticking straight up, right? But what's best about Albert Bell, besides giving a forearm shiver to Fernando Vina going to second base, Jesus Christ, he murdered that fucking guy, was when the ball would come, Albert Bell would like lift his shoulders and his whole body and his arms in the bat and just lift them up and swing that bat. And that's where he'd get his power from. He would just lift, come up in the air and drive that power and hammer, hammer baseballs. Albert Bell, man, if he could have played longer, Hall of Famer, man. Albert Bell's a 90s. He might not be a Hall of Famer. Albert Bell is a 90s legend. He also drinks a lot. And that was sort of, he had some demons, so it didn't really work. But check this out. I think Albert Bell is the only guy ever in baseball history with 50 doubles and 50 home runs in a year. He hit 50, oh, he hit 52 home runs and 50 doubles, like probably in like 95 or something like that. He's the only guy to ever do it, man. He was offense. He was elite offensively he just had demons man I think he drank a lot he went hell early in his career he was going to like um alcohol rehab right Albert Bell was dude but and he was pretty grumpy I think right you know the whole forum shiver remember the time that Albert Bell got hit by a pitch and he tried to act like he didn't hit it by the pitch yeah he was on hell I think it was an Albert Bell was on the Orioles right he signed with the Orioles that was before he went to the White Sox but after the Indians right and Albert gets hit by a pitch, and he doesn't leave the batter's box because he's trying to, like, play it off because Albert wants the bat because Albert hits home runs, right? And the pitcher was probably like, oh, I hit Albert Bell, and he didn't charge the mound. Thank God, right, because he would murder me. And Albert's like, no, I don't want to go to first. I want to – I want to." he's like, I want to fucking swing the bat. And the ump's like, bro – We've been playing baseball for 120 years. You've got to go to first. And they had to talk Albert Bell into taking his base. He was cussing at the ump. He's like, I want to fucking swing the bat. I don't want to go to first. Fuck that. But they made him go, dude. And so, yeah, wrapping paper, empty wrapping paper tube. Albert Bell swings legit. But the Barry Bonds, dude, effortless. He d he's got one of the best bat waggles where it's got just this rhythm to it where it's like... <laughs> And he's just kicking that Batman. And then he doesn't even have a leg kick. He just does like a toe tap. And he's hit monster home runs. And he'd swing the bat. And you just wonder if he even tried. He had a broken bat home run in Florida one time. And it's like he couldn't believe it. And the bat fucking cracked, dude. And hell, the bat flew to the outfield. And it was steroid, Barry. He, so he was strong at the time. But, man, he just took the easiest swing bat shatters, and he hits the home run, and he can't believe it. He's like, what in the world? He's looking for the bat. He's got the bat handle in his hand. Probably doesn't even really know where the ball went. And they're just like, dude, circle the bases. You hit a home run, man. And so that's just what he does, man. And But the Barry, dude, I mean, it's just nuts, man. And plus, he choked up, too, which was completely 
completely wild. Because, I mean, there aren't really a lot of hitters that choke up that don't have two strikes or aren't named Brett Butler, right? And it's just impressive that he would do that. And But that's just what it was with Barry, man. Phenomenal eye, phenomenal bat control. And he just... It's like the guy knew it was coming, man. It's unbelievable what he did. But the Barry Bond stance, phenomenal. All time. One of the all time empty wrapping paper juices. Oh, shoot. I, th- I think that's a wrap on the podcast. I think we've completed another episode. We made it through. Yes. Thanks for listening. If you made it through this whole thing, thank you for listening to the podcast. Even if you only listen to partial of it, thank you. But you probably wouldn't get to this part to hear me say thanks. But have a Merry Christmas. Find those empty wrapping paper tubes, swing for the fences, and have a, what do you say, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Why would I forget that on the podcast? Doing a podcast is hard. I'm not good at it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Instagram, Greatest Show on Dirt. Give us a follow. If you don't, I post some stuff there, right? But thank you so much. This will probably be the last podcast of the year, I think. So thanks for, gosh, thanks for hanging out with me for another year. It's been fun. And... I guess I'll uh, see you next year. (laughs) All right, take care, guys. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I'll see you later. Bye.